Please be seated. Our sermon text comes from Ruth chapter 1. If you'd like to open there with me, if you have your Bibles, we can open to the book of Ruth. It falls in between the book of Judges and the book of First Samuel, uh, both in its place in the Bible, also in, in, in history. The book of Ruth occurs in the period of the Judges when Israel had entered into the promised land, but they had not yet uh, had their first king anointed. And I will be preaching uh, through each chapter of Ruth, four chapters, uh, four weeks, and then in the middle of that, we'll have a minister from Presbytery come, and he'll preach a sermon and administer uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, since I'm unable to do that because I'm currently unordained. But we will take a break in the middle of our series in Ruth to take the Lord's Supper um, and to hear a sermon from a uh, minister from Presbytery. But this morning, we will begin with Ruth chapter 1, um, if you have your Bible. Let's begin in verse 1, and pay careful attention because this is God's holy and inspired word. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she, had returned, uh, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go away. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons... Would you wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought 
calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this word that you've revealed to us. You've revealed your nature to us, your character, and your salvation. And we ask that by the Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and minds that we might apprehend your saving gospel, that we might cling to Christ in faith, and that we might respond appropriately, giving you thanks for the salvation we have in your Son. And would you grant that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you had time before service to look at your bulletin and read the first page there, you, you probably saw a quote. Uh, we usually put a quote at the first page of your bulletin. And you're probably wondering why the word Christmas appears in a church bulletin in September. Some of you might be mad. But I didn't pick that quote because it mentions Christmas, even though if you are familiar with Ruth, you'll know that the message of Christmas is the message of Ruth. But I didn't pick this quote because of its uh, reference to the Christmas message. I picked it because it so beautifully illustrates the main points of the whole book of Ruth, but especially chapter one. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who wrote this quote, he was a German pastor and theologian who lived during World War II. He was a leader in the Confessing Church, which was the Protestant church that resisted the Nazis. He established a seminary, pastor churches, but he also worked undercover to smuggle Jews out of Germany, and he was even assassinated for his involvement, or not assassinated, sorry, he was even imprisoned for his involvement in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. Uh, and Bonhoeffer wrote this line in a letter to his fiancee, Maria, while he was imprisoned in a concentration camp, where he was later executed just a few days before the camp was freed. He says, and then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, that is all. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who has secretly revealed his love and who rules uh, the world and our lives. Bonhoeffer speaks beautifully of God's providence in times of bitterness and darkness, and I can't imagine a time darker than the one that Bonhoeffer lived through. But even though the book of Ruth is often sometimes presented as an instructional book for how to find a good husband, or, <laughs> or a chronicle of human acts of faithfulness, the book is actually all about God's faithful providence in the midst of dark times. It's all about God's faithful providence. The book of Ruth teaches us that even in the face of famine and death, God providentially works all things together, not only for the salvation of Ruth and Naomi, but even for you and me. And so when we look at the circumstances around us and think there is no hope, it is our eyes that are at fault, that is all. God rules the world, even through the most bitter circumstances, and so we must walk by faith and not by sight. This is what we'll see in our passage this morning, and we'll look at it in three points. First, the barrenness of curse, then the blessing of faithfulness, and last, the bitterness of lament. So we'll begin with our first point in verses 1 to 5, the barrenness of curse. Our chapter in the whole book of Ruth opens by putting the events of Ruth into historical context. These things happened 
in the days that the judges were ruling over Israel, the time between the entrance into the promised land and the monarchy in Israel. This was a period characterized by Israel's disobedience and God's punishment. After God had redeemed Israel from Egypt, you'll remember he entered into a covenant with them at, at Mount Sinai. He entered into a covenant with Israel. And a covenant is a legally binding relationship with conditions and consequences. The conditions of the covenant that God made with Israel are best summarized in the Ten Commandments. But God gave them a, a further condition that when they entered the promised land, they were to empty it of its, previous, uh, of its previous idolatrous inhabitants. Like the Canaanites and the Philistines, Israel was to drive out the idolatrous inhabitants when they entered the promised land. But the book of Judges opens by saying that Israel had failed to do this. That's the first thing that we read in chapter, I think, two of Judges. Israel failed to do this. They let the idolatrous nations live and they were influenced by them to commit idolatry. And so the beginning of the book of Judges tells us that Israel broke the first of the Ten Commandments, they, they committed idolatry, and they broke the covenant they had made with God just a couple generations after they had entered the Promised Land. And so as a result, God sent enemies to oppress them. But this should not have surprised them because oppression from enemies was part of the original covenant. This was the consequence for breaking the covenant. So when Israel broke the conditions of the covenant, God sent the consequences. He sent enemies to oppress them. But when Israel was suffering under their oppressors during the period of the judges, they repented, they cried out to God for help, and he sent them judges to deliver them from their enemies. And they weren't like our judges working in courts, passing judgment. They were more like chieftains. They led local clans into battle against their enemies. But after the judges delivered Israel from their oppression and ruled them for uh, a short time, Israel would again return to idolatry and covenant breaking, and God would again send enemies to oppress them as punishment. And this is a repeated cycle in the period of the judges. Israel disobeyed God. He sent judgment upon them in the form of enemies. Israel repented. He sent judges to save them, and they disobeyed again, and so on and so on. But as it goes, as this cycle repeats in the book of Judges, Israel becomes more and more evil. So that at the end of the book of Judges in chapter 19, the nation of Israel looks more like Sodom and Gomorrah than the covenant people of God. The Israelite city of Gibeah, which was just a few miles from Bethlehem, a city that our book is set in, just a few miles, Gibeah uh, acts just like Sodom, trying to rape a man who was visiting their city. But instead, they raped and killed the man's concubine. And because of this evil, civil war broke out in Israel. And the book of Judges ends with the nation of Israel almost tearing each other apart, almost wiping out the whole tribe of Benjamin. And remember that refrain that is repeated at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was the period that the events of Ruth took place. It's really important for us to remember that. It's a dark and dangerous period of Israel's history, especially dangerous for a woman to be on her own. It's a time characterized by covenant breaking and curse. And this connection is made even more explicit in the remainder of Ruth uh, chapter one, verse one. It says, during the days of the judges, there was a famine. And if you're familiar with the Mosaic covenant, you'll know that uh, this detail also has a lot of significance. God 
did send enemies to oppress Israel to punish them for their disobedience, but he also sent various plagues as punishments, including famine. And so famine was not just a normal hardship for Israel. It was a curse from God to punish Israel for breaking his covenant and disobeying his laws. That's the context of the book of Ruth. God is punishing his people in the time of the judges for their disobedience. In verse 1, we are told that Elimelech and his wife Naomi fled from Bethlehem because of the famine, and they sojourned in Moab. This shows us that the famine was limited to the land of Israel and therefore was a punishment on them alone. That's because Moab was only about 30 to 50 miles away. And they had a very similar climate to Israel, even one that's usually drier than Israel. And so we can see the famine was indeed a punishment from God. It did not affect Israel's close neighbors. It only affected Israel. There's also some uh, irony in this statement that uh, Elimelech fled Bethlehem to uh, Moab because of a famine. See, Bethlehem means house of bread. And so Elimelech fled the house of bread thinking he could find bread elsewhere. But even more important, Elimelech's flight from Bethlehem calls into question his faith. In the period of the judges, God sent war and famine to punish Israel, but these were correcting punishments. They were meant to bring Israel to repentance and faith, to correct them in their disobedience and turn them around. But instead of being corrected by the famine and repenting of their sins and the sins of their nation, Elimelech and his family fled. They turned their backs on God. They ignored his correction. Not only did they ignore God's correction and even abandon his kingdom, but they fled to a particularly bad place, to Moab. And there's a few reasons why Moab would have been a bad place for Israel to go to at various times in Israel's history. But in this time in Israel's history, Moab was an enemy of God's people. Israel had recently been oppressed by Eglon, the king of Moab. You can see that in Judges chapter 3. And so not only did Elimelech lead his family out of the house of bread and the congregation of the Lord, he led them into a country that was an enemy of Israel. And Elimelech's fate confirms that he was sinning by going to Moab. It confirms what we've noticed already about his actions. We read in verse 3 that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And this introduces a problem of the book of Ruth. The big problem is that Naomi is left a widow. And in the ancient world, a widow was in a delicate position, a, a, a dangerous position, having no guarantee of financial, physical, or legal security. Because for better or for worse, this is not, you know, this is not telling us how things should be. This is just telling us how things were at their time. But at that time, a woman's provision and protection were directly connected either to her father, her husband, or another male relative. And so the fact that Naomi was left a widow was not just emotionally tragic, it was also uh, physically and financially uh, distressing. It, it put her in a very difficult and dangerous position. But of course, Naomi had two sons, and so she's not completely without hope. Uh, verse 4 tells us that the two sons marry Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. Uh, and even though Israel was forbidden to intermarry with the nations uh, inside of the promised land, like Philistines and Canaanites, they, uh, Moabite, Mo Moab was outside, so this was not necessarily a forbidden marriage. Uh, as long as the women converted from paganism, they stopped living like Moabites, this was a legal marriage in Israel, as far as I can tell. Uh, 
And so through her sons and their marriages, Naomi could have had legal and financial security, but even more, the bloodline of Naomi and her husband would have been continued through her sons and their wives. But Naomi's hope in her sons and their marriages did not pay off. After their father Elimelech died and they married uh, and they lived in Moab for about 10 years, Malon and Kilian died. And of course, if you were an ancient Israelite reading the book of Ruth, you would have known this was coming because Malon and Kilian mean sickly and perishing. And so it's not surprising that they died. We were foreshadowed uh, that we were hinted into that fact, but they pass away and Naomi is left alone in a foreign land. She's bereft of her husband and sons, having no uh, children. She's left without any male figure to provide and protect her. And she's in a foreign land, one that was even hostile to Israel in the recent past. And even more, now she has two daughters-in-law who are also widows and whom she now has to worry about as well. But just like the famine was more than a result of weather, wet weather patterns, so the death of Elimelech and his sons was not just bad luck. The famine was judgment from God for Israel's disobedience, and so was the death of Elimelech and his sons. Uh, Amos 7.17 tells us that dying and being buried outside of God's promised land was the ultimate curse and disgrace. And that's just what happens to these three men. But it wasn't just their death that was a punishment and curse from God. Even their barrenness was a curse from God. The two sons of, Ru uh, of Naomi were married to Ruth and Orpah for years before they died, but they never had children. They never had children that could carry on the bloodline. And for Israel, barrenness was another explicit curse from God that we see in the Mosaic Covenant. You can see this in Deuteronomy 28, 18. God would punish Israel for covenant breaking by making them barren. And so the barrenness of Naomi's sons was another judgment of God. And so Naomi is left alone, a widow who has been afflicted by death and emptiness. And not only her, but her two daughters-in-law who lost their husbands as well. They're all widows, left without protection or provision during the most dangerous period of Israel's history. And all of these misfortunes, famine, death, and barrenness, they all came from the hand of God to punish his disobedient people. Elimelech thought he could run away from God's punishment, but God would not let him get away so easily while the rest of Israel was being punished for disobedience. And so God punished Elimelech and his family as well. He, he followed them with his punishment. And this is the problem of the book of Ruth. Naomi and her family have been cursed by God. They've been punished. And this is a greater problem. This concerns even the line of David which we'll see in the coming sermons. And what happens next in chapter one shows us the first step towards a solution. We start to see what God is doing to solve this problem of Naomi's uh, being a widow, her barrenness, her, cursed by, her being cursed by God. And so let's now consider how God begins to redeem Naomi in our second point, the blessing of faithfulness. We read in verse six that Naomi decided to leave Moab with her daughters. We're not told that she had a change of heart. We're not told that she repented from her sin or confessed. But we are told why she made this decision to leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem. She heard that the Lord had visited his people to give them food. And so in the midst of these curses for disobedience, 
In the midst of the famine that God was sending on his disobedient people, God had mercy on them and sent them relief from the famine. And this is a glimmer of hope in the book. It's showing us that God still has grace for his people. He still has concern for them. Even though they disobey him, his redemptive purposes will not be thwarted. And this detail also keys us into a main theme in the book of Ruth, the providence of God. Providence is God's work of guiding, caring for, or ruling all of his creation. And not only that, but God carries out his wise and perfect plan through his providential rule. And so this verse is the first indication that God's providence is at work in the book of Ruth. He has visited his people and ended famine, giving them food. We're, we are shown that God is in control of ending this famine. And that leads us to ask, what else is in God control of? Could he end the other curses that he sent as well? When Naomi heard about God's care for his people, she decided to return to Bethlehem with Ruth and Orpah. Uh, most often, a widow uh, in this time in Israel's history, a widow would return to her parents' house when she became a widow. That was the only place she could be guaranteed a provision. But they don't want to do that uh, for whatever reason. They don't want to leave Naomi. It seems like it's probably because of their love for her. They're committed to her. And so they refuse to leave. They start to go with her towards Bethlehem. But at some point during her return, Naomi turned to Ruth and Orpah and voiced her concern for them. She told them to return to Moab and to leave her because she knew their chances were better if they returned to their parents and their people. Their chances were better of finding a husband at their, in their homeland. And Naomi blessed them in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord deal with you faithfully, just, if you, just as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord give to you and may you find rest, each in the house of her husband. But Ruth and Orpah refused to leave Naomi still. After weeping together, they answered her in verse 10, No, we will return with you to your people. This is a great example of what Naomi said about them in verse 8. They are showing faithfulness and kindness to Naomi. But she insisted and told them to depart in verses 12 and 13, and she explains her reasoning. If Ruth and Orpah stay with her, there is no chance they will find the protection and provision of a man. Naomi is too old to marry and have children, and even if she did marry and conceive that night, they would have to wait many years before her sons could provide for them as husbands. Naomi reveals her character in the speech by expressing her care and concern for her daughters-in-law. She ends by saying, no, my daughters, that would be very bitter for me, more than for you. In other words, Naomi's present distress is more bitter than that of Ruth and Orpah because Naomi feels responsible for providing for her daughters-in-law. She cares for them. She wants to provide for them but can't, and so she is more bitter than they. But pay attention to how Naomi is looking at her situation. This is also revealed to us in, in what she says in, in, chap, in verses 12 and 13. We can see how she is looking at her distress. She's distressed because she is unable to provide for Ruth and Orpah or give them a man to provide for them. And so we can see she thinks their bitter circumstances would be solved if only they had husbands. And no doubt she's right to a degree. Remember what I said earlier, at this time in history, a woman had no legal or financial standing or welfare apart from a man. Even more, during the time of the judges, it would have been extremely dangerous to be a woman alone in Israel. If you're curious about that, just read Judges 19. It's terrible. 
Not only were there foreign nations oppressing and raiding Israel, but Israelites themselves were evil and wicked. And we can see that even in Ruth chapter 2, where Boaz secures Ruth's uh, protection. He repeatedly commands his male servants, don't touch her. He has to do that. That's, what, that's the kind of time that this is in Israel's history. It's very dangerous. And so Naomi is technically right that getting a husband would solve their problems. They would get protection and provision. But she's walking by sight and not by faith. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. In this chapter, Naomi is a great example of what it means to walk by sight. Even though she has heard about God's renewed care and provision for Israel in reversing the famine, she does not seem to realize that God also cares and provides for her. If Naomi had walked by faith, then she would have had confidence that the Lord was her true provider, not any husband or man. And so she's walking by sight. And like her mother-in-law, Orpah did the same. She walked by sight and not by faith. At Naomi's insistence, Orpah departed and returned to Moab. But she didn't just leave Naomi, she left God's people and even God himself, and she returned to her people and her gods. Walking by sight, Orpah agreed with Naomi's conclusion that only a man could provide for her and reverse her bitter situation, and that her best chances of finding a man were in Moab. But while Orpah was kissing her mother-in-law farewell and departing, Ruth was clinging to Naomi and refusing to return to Moab. She was walking by faith. Her outward circumstances did not diminish her faith in a God who provides, and Naomi's inability to provide did not diminish her faithfulness toward her. Instead, Ruth confirmed her faithfulness to Naomi and her faith in Israel's God. This is what we see in verses 16 and 17, this wonderful confession of Ruth. She says, don't plead with me to leave you, to turn from following you, for where you go, I will go, and, there, and, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. This is an amazing state full, statement full of faith and devotion. Ruth commits herself to Naomi for all of life. This is what it means when she says, where you go and where you stay the night. This is a merism. It, it represents all of life. But Ruth's commitment is not limited uh, to Naomi's life either. She commits, her to, she commits herself to Naomi in death. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. But Ruth's words go beyond a simple confession of commitment. This is actually a, a covenant that Ruth makes with Naomi. It's a, a covenant-making oath. This is what her words mean in verse 17. Thus may the Lord do to me, and thus may he add, if anything but death makes a separation between you and me. And so we can see the conditions of the covenant. They're very simple. Ruth will never leave Naomi except for death. Death would be the only thing to separate them. And the consequences are actually unstated, and this is usually how an oath works in the Bible. When it says, thus may the Lord do, it's implying an unspoken curse from God for disobedience to the oath. But there's a really important detail of this covenant-making oath. Notice, which God does Ruth call as witness? Not the gods of Moab, not the chief god of Moab, whose name was Chemosh, and who was a ruthless god of war, even accepting child sacrifice. No. Ruth took her oath in the name of Yahweh, the true God and the Lord of Israel. And this means she believed that the Lord was able to hear her 
able to hear her oath and be a witness and even able to punish her if she broke the oath, which means she believed he was sovereign, sovereign to hear her and sovereign to act. This means she had turned away from her pagan gods and she had faith in the true God, no matter how little she knew of him, no matter how comprehensive her faith, she had faith in the God of Israel. This is even more evident in the statement which falls in the middle of her confession. This is the climax of what she was saying in verses 16 and 17. Unlike Orpah, who returned to her people and gods, Ruth says in verse 16, your people are my people and your gods are my gods, or are my God, rather. Most English translations put this in the future tense, but there are actually no verbs in this. It just says, your people, my people, your God, my God. And so we have to provide the verbs. And so it could be either present or future. We have to determine what the context uh, says about what she is saying. Is it present, future? And I think present tense adds force to what Ruth is saying. The reason Ruth will not depart Naomi is that Naomi's people and God are already Ruth's people and God. She married into Naomi's family, and when she did, she married into Naomi's tribe and religion. And so Ruth no longer sees herself as a Moabitess. She is an Israelite, and the Lord is her God. This is substantial faith. At a time in Israel's history when it seemed like everyone was abandoning the Lord to worship false gods, Ruth abandoned her false gods to worship the true God. Even the God whom her in-laws were fleeing from famine. The God who brought famine on her family and, and fled to Moab because of it. This is the God that she clings to. And for this great faith, Ruth is blessed. And she is included in God's people and a member of God's covenant of promise. Ruth's confession is really the climax of the first chapter of Ruth. It not only reveals to us, uh, it not only reveals to us Ruth's faith, but it also reveals to us the beginning of the solution to the problem in Ruth, the first step towards resolution. Remember, the problem is Naomi's bitterness and barrenness, her curse from God. But by clinging to Naomi, Ruth is part of the solution to this problem. Naomi's life is not completely full of bitterness because she has the faithfulness of her daughter-in-law. But further, this foreshadows the final result to the problem, which we see at the end of the book. Through Ruth's faithfulness, God expresses his faithfulness to Naomi and even his faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham. But in the meantime, Naomi listened to Ruth's confession. She recognized that Ruth had committed herself to following Naomi, and she said no more. They continue their journey to Bethlehem, and when they arrive, Naomi provides us with an interpretation of her bitter situation. And this brings us to our third and final point, the bitterness of lament. As Naomi and Ruth entered the city, the Bethlehemites asked in surprise, is this Naomi? They knew who the woman was. This wasn't a legitimate question. It's a rhetorical question. They were in shock because her appearance had taken on the grief of her pain and loss. The years and tragedy had taken their toll on her. She might even have been dressed for mourning, wearing sackcloth and ashes, maybe even a veil. But when they ask this question, Naomi answers with a play on words. Uh, with her name. Her name means pleasant. So when the women of Bethlehem ask, is this Naomi? She answers, no. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. 
This sheds light on what Naomi thought about her circumstances. By playing on the meaning of her name, Naomi reiterates what we already saw in verse 13. Naomi's life has become bitter. But it also reiterates that Naomi acknowledged that her bitterness came from God and that God was sovereign over her suffering. She goes on to say, Full I went out, and empty the Lord has returned me. Why would you call me pleasant? The Lord has testified against me, and Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Not only was her fullness taken away uh, by the Lord, but she was testified against by the Lord. This is what she says, the Lord has testified against me. This is legal language. It's as if Naomi was in court and the Lord was called as witness against her to testify against her. And it suggests that Naomi recognized that the Lord was punishing her for disobedience. It suggests that she knew that she had break, broken the legally binding relationship that she had with God. Perhaps she realized it was wrong of her and her husband to flee Moab, but she doesn't repent. She doesn't confess her sin. She simply acknowledges that God's providential hand was against her and that her bitterness was from the Lord. But notice what Naomi does not recognize. She knows that God is sovereign over her loss, but she does not seem to recognize that God is also sovereign over her gain. She confesses that God has made her life bitter, but doesn't seem to believe that God can make her life pleasant again. But of course this is true. In Ruth, we see God's providence, not just in, in giving famine, but also in ending famine and giving food. Not just in bringing loss, but in al also in bringing restoration. And this is what we'll see. This is the overall story of the book of Ruth. God is restoring to Naomi what he took away. He's reversing the punishment that he put upon her for disobedience. But why would God take something away just to give it back? Why would he take away her sons just to give back a son, give her back blessedness? God doesn't do something like this without a reason. He's not capricious. He's not a tyrant playing with the lives of, uns of, unsus of unsuspecting people. No, God made Naomi bitter because she had strayed from his flock. God made her empty so he could bring her back. Just like the nation of Israel, God punished Naomi to bring her to repentance and faith, to turn her around from her disobedience. But even more, Naomi's bitterness was part of God's much bigger plan. He didn't just give, uh, he, he didn't just take away and give back. He used all the events and misfortunes in Naomi's life to further his work of redemption. He used all of the events in Naomi's life to turn all of humanity back around to him. And God did not simply restore Naomi to her previous state of pleasantness. He restored her far more abundantly than before. God was sovereign, not just over her bitterness, but also over her pleasantness. And this is true for us as well. When you experience pain and loss, know that the God who took away what he had already given is the same God who will give again. God has not promised us prosperity in this life, so we cannot assume that we will experience restoration in our lifetimes. Some of us may pass away from unhealed sickness. Some of us may lose dear friends and family members, and all of this is from the Lord. But the Lord has promised us a fully restored body and a heavenly family and at the resurrection and in the new creation. We may not receive it in this life, but believers will receive restoration in the life to come. And all of the bitter providences that the Lord has brought upon us will be turned pleasant. This means that even our most bitter circumstances are not the final word for us. 
just as we will see Naomi restored by the hand of the Lord, he will restore us. Of course, the most bitter circumstance for us is to be cursed by God, just like Naomi. Naomi's plight of death and barrenness not only sets up the problem of the book of Ruth, but it also resonates with the plight of every human being. Naomi was not just afflicted by bad luck or simple misfortune. She was afflicted by the hand of God as punishment for disobedience. And this is the same for you and me. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant like Naomi was, so we don't have to worry about the specific uh, curses for the specific sins of Israel, uh, like, like barrenness or famine. But we are all born into a covenant of works between God and mankind. God entered into a covenant with Adam, and Adam was the representative of all humans. And so all humans are born into a legally binding relationship with God. We're all born into a covenant. The condition of this covenant of works was to perfectly obey God and keep all his commandments. And this was focused into one specific commandment. God forbade Adam from eating of the tree of knowing good and evil. The reward for keeping this condition was life, and the punishment for disobedience was death. And of course we know, Adam disobeyed God. He ate the forbidden fruit. He fell into sin and death, and he dragged all humanity with him. This means that not only are we all born into a covenant of works with God, we're not only all born into a legally binding relationship with God, but we are all born as covenant breakers, just like Israel and Naomi. We're all born as condemned under the law. And this means that we're also born into a world afflicted by the consequences of Adam's sin, namely death. It isn't true that our specific hardships are punishment for our specific sins, but it is true that death and hardship afflict all humans because of our fall into sin. So just like Naomi was afflicted by death and emptiness for her sins and the sins of her nation, Israel, we are afflicted by death and emptiness because of our sins and the sins of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Like Naomi, all humans are born with the hand of God against them. And like Naomi, the bitterness in our lives is part of God's plan to redeem us. Just like her, we are born in need of a redeemer. The story of Ruth reveals not only how God provided Naomi and Ruth with a redeemer, but even how God provides us with a redeemer through Naomi and Ruth. Ruth teaches us about our own curse from God as punishment for sin, as well as the redemption that God provided to save us from our sins and the curse for our sin. And we have a peek into our redemption from sin in Ruth's confession. Ruth the Moabitess it left her mother and father, her brother and sisters, her homeland, all for the sake of the gospel. She clung to Naomi, and in doing so, she clung to Christ in faith. And because of this faith, Ruth was welcomed into God's people. Ruth's inclusion into Israel foreshadows the inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Testament. See, if Christ did not come and send his apostles to make disciples of all nations, then you and I would be in the same place as Ruth in Moab. We would be born as covenant breakers, separated from the covenant of God, separated from God's people. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what Jesus did for Ruth. He brought her near through his blood. Through God's perfect and wise providence, he sent famine on Israel, 
sent Elimelech to Moab, uh, whose sons married Moabite women, sent death to Elimelech and his sons, and gave relief from the famine. All of this God did to bring Ruth into his flock and to further his work of redemption. Not only did Jesus bring Ruth near through his blood, but he gave her the privilege of bringing Jesus near to us through her blood. And he brought her into the covenant of promise, as Paul says, which we would call the covenant of grace, which is the opposite of the covenant of works that all humans are condemned under. The covenant of grace is the solution to the sin and death that all humans are born into. By faith, we can enter this covenant of grace just like Ruth and we can find forgiveness and reconciliation. We can find the redemption of our souls. And so Ruth also gives us an example to follow. Just like Ruth walked by faith in God and not by sight, we must do the same. We must cling to Christ in faith for our redemption and to enter the covenant of grace. Even when it seems like we're wasting away, even when everything is dark and bitter around us, we must walk by faith. No matter what things look like outwardly, trust in God because he is your provider. You're not your own provider, neither is any other person. Imitate Ruth and trust in God's providence and faithfulness even when the outward circumstances of your life are bitter. Many of you are suffering under a bitter providence of God, maybe sickness or loss or depression. But whatever it is, know that God has called you to walk by faith with the sure hope that for those who believe in God, all of his providence ends in pleasantness. For God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But how can we be sure that God's providence ends in pleasantness for believers? How can we be sure of this promise? Why would God even do such a thing for us? Just like Israel in the period of Judges, we earned God's bitter providence by breaking his covenant. God told Adam that if he sinned, he would die. And this is where we are. We sinned, and we deserve death. We are covenant breakers. We deserve the bitterness and judgment from God, not pleasantness or redemption. But God gives blessing and redemption to believers for the sake of Jesus, who became bitter for us. His soul was very sorrowful even to death. He took on the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' whole life was full of bitter providence culminating on the cross. Like Naomi, he was cut off from his fans, friends and family, left to die alone. Like Naomi, God's hand was against Jesus. But Jesus was sinless. He suffered the punishment for our sins and in our place. He took on the curses we deserved, the consequences that we should have suffered because of our, disobedient to the, our disobedience to the conditions of the covenant. And he established a new covenant, not of works, but of grace. Jesus did everything that was necessary to redeem us and to remove the alienation that stood between us and God. You could say, Christ became Mara to make us Naomi. Our Lord Jesus Christ became bitter to give us a pleasant reward. And so let us imitate Ruth and cling to Jesus in faith. Because without Jesus, Ruth would have remained estranged from God and an outsider to the covenant of grace, and so would we. Without Jesus, Naomi and all Israel would have died under God's wrath, and so would we. But through Ruth and Naomi, God worked providentially to bring their Redeemer and ours. 
God used Ruth's faith and inclusion into God's people to teach us about our salvation by faith and our inclusion into God's people. But he also used Naomi's bitterness to teach us about our Savior's bitterness. And because of the bitterness of our Redeemer's life, he pours out the pleasantness of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And he makes covenant breakers and outlaws into faithful members of the covenant of grace and beneficiaries of his death and life. And for that, let us give thanks in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, our creator and redeemer, we give you thanks for what you have revealed to us in the book of Ruth. Although we deserve death, you have given us life. Although we deserve your bitter providence, you have made us pleasant. And we thank you that you have given us this redemption by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. We thank you for the life of our redeemer, that he was made bitter and suffered immensely for our sake and in our place. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would increase our gratitude for Christ's work and that you would strengthen us and enable us to walk by faith and not by sight and to trust in your good providence. And now as we bring gifts and offerings to you, would you stir our hearts with gratitude and generosity that we might give with joy and thankfulness for the great gift that you have given us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. <laughs>